Well, if you turn in your Bibles to Psalm 77, that's page uh, 588 in the church Bibles or 913 in the large print, Psalm 77. I don't know how many of you enjoy reading adventure stories or uh, fantasy stories that are really exciting as they go through the story of an individual or a group of people. And I, I really enjoy reading them. And part of the reason that I find them exciting is because you don't know what is going to happen. You don't know what's next. Uh, yesterday we went to the cinema uh, as a family and we watched Swallows and Amazons, which was a book that uh, I've read to our children. And it's the story of some children that go on an adventure uh, on Lake Windermere. Uh, and it's really exciting uh, as you read the story because you don't know what is going to happen. So even as we were watching the film yesterday, we were wondering, well, could little Roger go on the trip or not because he's too young and he can't swim very well? Uh, who would win the battle with these pirates? How would John escape from Captain Flint? What's Captain Flint up to? What's wrong with him? And all of these questions. And if you want to find out the answers, you need to go and read the book uh, and do that before you watch the film. But you can find out all of those uh, things because you're into the story and it's exciting. But it wouldn't be so exciting if we knew exactly what was going to happen from beginning to end. It's exciting when we don't know what's going to happen next. But that's true in an adventure story, it's true in a film, but it's not so true if we're the one who's really not knowing what is next. If we are going into the unknown, it often isn't so exciting. The reason it's exciting in the stories is because it's happening to other people. It's not happening to me. And the Israelites weren't that excited when they were at the Red Sea. They didn't know what was next But exciting wouldn't be the word that you would describe how they felt. Terrified would be a better description. They were facing this obstacle. They were facing this affliction with the Egyptians behind them, the Red Sea in front of them, and they didn't have a clue what was going to happen. And in Psalm 77, we read of of, of Asaph going back, looking back to this time in Israel And he's looking back at a time when he is in distress. We're not told what his affliction is, but he is in great distress. And we see this as we read through the psalm. But within this psalm, we see that even though God is not seen by Asaph, the future is unknown, we see in Psalm 77 that God is good even in the unseen And you'll see what I mean, especially as we get towards the end of the psalm, as we read it together. So let's read Psalm 77. And it again begins with these performance notes, and we know what some of these mean. It's for the the director of music. We looked at that over the last two psalms. But it's also written uh, for a man called Jeduthun, and he was one of the singers in the choir that King David had set up. So it was was a a song uh, with him in mind, with him to sing, for him to sing. And it was of Asaph, and it's a psalm. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands, and I would not be comforted. 
I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, the years long ago. I remembered the songs in the night. My heart meditated and my spirit asked, Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Then I thought, to this I will appeal. The years when the Most High stretched out his right hand. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. And the earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea. Your way through the mighty waters. Though your footprints were not seen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Well, we see there towards the end him looking back at Egypt and he says, your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. And there's the ending of this psalm. We see this man trusting God, but that is not how it begins. In most of Asaph's psalms, we see that he is a very uh, contemplative man. Uh, When Spurgeon writes about these psalms, he says that uh, there's a a dash of sadness about Asaph. And many of his psalms are questioning God. They're wondering why, God, are things the way they are. I'm not understanding why. And we've seen that, haven't we, as we've gone uh, through uh, from Psalm 50 and then from Psalm 77 through to this one. Asaph is often questioning God, wondering why. What is going on? He's struggling as as a believer to keep following God in the midst of great affliction. And here he seems again to be under much affliction. And so his psalms are good to turn to during those times when we are struggling. When we're finding it hard, the psalms of Asaph are wonderful to go to and you see a man who is right where you are. And from the opening verses of this psalm, we see his, uh, he is a man in affliction. We don't know what this affliction is, but we can, we can see it in how he, how he prays. Look at how he prays in verse 1. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands and I would not be comforted. There's this repetition of cried out. And I cried out. I cried out. It's emphasizing his, his distress here. But the distress doesn't stop him praying. He stretches out untiring hands. And that describes physically how how he's praying here. It's like when when I was a child, we went to uh, sleepovers at my friend's houses. And we always used to have this competition to see who could stay awake the longest. And the way we would do it was we'd lie there with our hand up like this. And whoever had their hand up at the end was the one that won the competition. Well, Asaph would have won. 
He's got untiring hands in prayer. He's stretching out, crying out to God nonstop because he is in distress. Well, this is surely a good thing, isn't it? I mean, it's good that we pray in times of distress. Well, yes, I'm not going to stand here and say that's not true. It is. And it's to be commended, but it was a, there was a problem for him. Because he's praying, and at the end of verse 2, he would not be comforted. The prayer wasn't working. I even get the, as I read this here, I, I see him, it's not that prayer isn't working, but he would not be comforted. He, he's not got the right heart to be comforted. He's, he's crying out to God, and yes, he wants comfort, but he doesn't really want God to do anything about it. He would not be comforted. This prayer isn't working. God is, is silent. God seems to be hiding. He can't see him. And then verse 3 tells us he remembers God. Now, if you remember back to last Sunday morning, and we looked at Psalm 74, we applied Psalm 74 by saying that in times of affliction, uh, God is good. And in times of affliction, we look back and we remember who God is. We remember those great things that he has done. So Asaph could have been in the congregation last week, and he could have been in distress, and he could have gone home, and he could have said, yes, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to remember God. And in verse 3, he remembers God, but there's a problem, because it all goes horribly wrong. Because if Asaph remembers God, it doesn't sound like he's been given much hope. Look look at verse 3, I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated and my spirit grew faint. Now, when I was preaching last week and I said, you, we, we all need to remember God in those times of affliction, how, what I didn't expect was you go home and then you think, oh, when you remember God, you groan and, you're, and you, you, your spirit grows faint as you meditate on God. That's not what we were talking about, was it? But that's what's happening. What's going on here? What's going on is this. Asaph is remembering, and he's meditating on what God has done in the past, but he's not bringing it to the present. He's meditating on what's being done in the past, but he's not bringing it to the present. And we see in these first uh, nine verses, really, that leaving God in the past leads to doubt. Leaving God in the past leads to doubt. And verses 4 to 9 makes clear how Asaph is doing this. It says, You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, the years long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart meditated and my spirit asked. And then from verses 7 to 9, there's all these questions about uh, to God. Will you reject us forever? Will he never show favor again? And and so on. These, These doubtful questions, wondering what's going on. And so thinking of God, remembering God, in verse 4, Asaph is in bed and he's remembering, but he can't sleep. Thinking of God it is keeping him awake. It's troubling him. He's lying in his bed, thinking about God, thinking, well, he's thinking verses, verses uh, 5 and 6. He, first of all, thinks about the former days. So he looks back in the past to the former days. If you like, to the, the time of the Exodus, perhaps. He's, he's looking back to the days long ago. And he's probably thinking, yeah, th- those were the days when God actually did something in my life. Those were the times when God actually worked. All those stories of God's miracles and those stories of deliverance were depressing for him. 
And we can have the same thing. We can talk about the great things God has done in the past. And we leave them there and think, oh, if only God would be the same today. As if he's not the same. It's like a, like football fans in England going on about 1966 and you know, nostalgia going back in 1966 and all that. And then you get to the World Cup and they're rubbish. We don't live in 1966 anymore. I mean, you wouldn't think of it when you speak to, well, I haven't spoke to Gary Lineker and all that, but, you know, they're, they're stuck there, aren't they? And that's what Asaph is here. It just depresses him. And sometimes we can do that to each other. When we talk about the past, it's a, a good thing until we say, well, it will never be like that again. Oh, God has finished with this nation. Do you know how depressing that is to hear? I'm just starting out in ministry in this nation and to be told God's finished? Oh, what's the point? I might as well pack up and go home. No, he's the same God. But for Asaph, he's leaving the the past there. And then in verse 6, he's remembering his songs. He thinks back to those songs of long ago, of happier times. And as he meditates on the songs, he's wondering, why are these words even true? And we can do the same thing. Oh, happy day when Jesus washed my sins away. He taught me how to watch and pray and live rejoicing every day. Hallelujah, happy day. Well, I'm not happy now. The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want, and yet I do want. When thy friends despise, forsake thee, take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms, he'll take and shield thee. Thou will find a solace there. Well, I'm praying, but, I'm, but God's hiding. In the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan. Well, what's that song on about anyway? Asaph is saying. These songs don't make sense to him. He's singing them, but what's going on? Now, of course, the, apart from in the bleak midwinter, those, the rest of those songs, the words are true. But he's singing them and they're depressing him because they're not his experience right now. And in fact, in verses 7 to 9, these questions really are questioning God himself. In Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6, uh, we've looked at this over the last week. Uh, God describes himself to Moses. He proclaims his name. And this is what God says. Listen carefully and then we'll look at verses 7 to 9. The Lord says this, I, I am the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. Well then look at the questions, compare it to that description. So the, the Lord says in Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate. Asaph says, will the Lord reject us forever? In Exodus 34, God says he's a gracious God. Asaph says, will he never show his favor again? In Exodus 34, God says he's slow to anger, abounding in love. Asaph says, has his unfailing love vanished forever? God says in Exodus 34 that he's a God of faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands. Well, Asaph says, are you really faithful? Has his promise failed for all time? God says he's a God that maintains love to thousands and forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And Asaph asks, has God been merciful, forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Do you see, he's, he's questioning the very name of God. God himself is questioned here. 
So he's thinking of the former days. He's singing the former songs. He's looking back to who God says he is and he's saying, is any of this true? Because it was then, but I don't feel it now. Has God changed, is his question. Has God changed? Is this, the the God that I'm remembering, still God? Is he still today? And you can see Asaph in despair here. And you can see how easily this can happen to us. Well, let's answer the questions that Asaph asks. Because they do beg for an answer. And the answer to every single one of them is, no. Will the Lord reject forever? No. Will he never show his favor again? Of course he will. Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Of course it hasn't. Has his promise failed for all time? No. God keeps his promises. Has God forgotten to be merciful? No. His mercies we read elsewhere are new every morning. Has he in anger withheld his compassion? No. God is merciful and gracious to his people. The Bible teaches that God never changes. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6 I, the Lord, do not change. James chapter 1 verse 17 says, God does not change like shifting shadows. But when you consider how God is perfect, well, of course he can't change. If God is is perfect, he can't become better because he's already perfect. And if he's perfect, he wouldn't change to become worse because then he wouldn't be perfect. And so God never changes. He's the unchanging God. And so the God who did those great works in Egypt, the God who we sing those songs of, and the God who describes himself in Exodus 34 is the same God. He has not changed. He never rejects his people. He is gracious, and so on. And the God who we remember as doing these great things is our God. And so this is what Asaph does next. He's in despair because he's leaving God in the past. Well, Asaph begins to bring God into the present. And when we bring God, God's work into the present, it brings hope. Bringing God's work into the present brings hope. And we see this change in verse 10. Now look at verse 10. It begins with these three words. Then I thought. So he's he's going through this period of despair and despondency as he's looking back to God and thinking he's changed. But then he thought. And Asaph thought again about God, but this time verse 10 signals there's going to be a change. A lot of Asaph's psalms, don't they, have this turning point right in the middle. He's thinking this and it's all wrong. He turns and he thinks right. And that's again what we'll see here. But actually, when you read verses 10 to 12, which we'll do in a second, there doesn't appear to be much of a change in what he's doing. So let's read those verses. Then I thought, to this I will appeal, the years when the Most High stretched out his right hand. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. What's he doing? He's doing what he's just been doing, surely. He's, he's remembering, again, what he's already remembered and has depressed him. So he appeals to the, to the years when the, when the Most High did work. That, that stretching out of the right of his right hand, now we've had that in a couple of songs tonight, that means God working. When God stretches out his right hand, that's Bible language for God is at work. 
So he appeals, he's going to appeal to the years when God worked, which you might think he's already done. So it's kind of like he's saying, I I remembered and it depressed me, so in order to change, I'm going to remember. (laughs) Well, let's see what really happens in verses 13 to 15 as he does remember this God of miracles. Notice straight away, there's a change as we read this. See if you notice how each verse begins, which is a change from how the other verses before began. Verse 13, your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. Notice the change. Everywhere else began with I. Then he turns to you, to God. That's the big change. He brings God from the past. You were like this God, and I feel like this now, to you're like this God, you're still like this God. So he brings God into the present. I remembered the past, and then you are, present tense, the holy, great, the God who performs miracles. So he goes from being insular to being theocentric, that is, God-centered. In other words, leaving God in the past leaves us in the present only really to look at ourselves. And when we look at ourselves, if you look at yourself long enough, it does bring us to despair, doesn't it? But when we remember that God is unchanging, and then we apply his past works and bring them into the here and now, it brings us hope, and here we see ultimately it brings us worship. And so as Asaph looks at God, he realizes that all these things that God has done, it's still the same God. And brothers and sisters, as we look at Exodus and those great miracles, and all through the Bible, at those great things God has done, he is still the same God. But when we leave him there, it leads to despair. He is still holy. He is still great. He is still the God who performs miracles and displays his power among the nations. This is our God. And in verse 15, we read of the greatest work he has done. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people. And as Asaph has done before, and as many Psalms do, it looks back to the Exodus account. It goes back there. And it talks here of the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. Again, it's talking about God's people, Israel. And the reason uh, it, it uses Jacob and Joseph here are because those two individual people were promised a place in Egypt. So Jacob and Joseph both went down to Egypt. Joseph because he was sent there, because he was sold by his brothers. And Jacob because he went for the food, because there was a famine in the land. Jacob, when he died was taken back to Egypt by his family and buried there. And Joseph, when he died, he was left in Egypt, but when they went to the promised land, his bones were carried and buried in Egypt. Both of them had that promise that eventually their bodies would be in the promised land. And Asaph is talking here about the redemption of his people, that great work that God has done. And he's in the midst of of this affliction and this despair and he's looking at the Exodus and now he's saying, you are the mighty Redeemer. You are still our Father. You are, we are still your people. Nothing has changed. 
And we look back to the cross, don't we? When we look at the Exodus, we, we, we kind of go right back, but it only uh, bounces us back. It's like a tra- Exodus is like a trampoline. When you look back, you bounce back and you come to the cross. And we look back to the cross where Jesus shed his blood to pay the price to free us from sin. And as we hear the cry of it is finished, and as we see the empty tomb, we look back at our redemption, at our salvation. And we know Asaph here, it feels as though God is hiding. When we look at the tomb, Jesus doesn't hide there. The tomb is empty. He is seated in heaven and he's returning for his people. This is our great redemption. This is the great work God has done. So yes, we need to remember the great things God has done, but we've got to bring them into the here and now, not leave them in the past. And this gives us hope that God will work again. Now in verse 15, we see this this general description of the Exodus. When When you read in the Bible, with a mighty arm you redeemed your people, it is almost always referring to the Exodus. But when we get to verse 16, down to the end, it is specifically talking about this miracle where the people of God crossed the Red Sea. In verses 16 to 20, Asaph hones in on that account. And the reason Asaph does this is because Asaph is picturing himself like the Israelites before the Red Sea. In his affliction, he's standing there and he feels like the Egyptians are behind me and the Red Sea is in front of me and I don't know how God is going to work. And so he looks back to what God did at the Red Sea. Well, let's look at what happened. Let's read up to verse 18. The waters... Uh, saw you, God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. So he describes here uh, the, the, the Red Sea account from the perspective of the water. <laughs> so the waters see God. And they, they writhe and, and, and convulse. And, and all, you know, so he's using the, that, that description to show the mighty work that God did to deliver his people and take them through to the promised land. And then look at verses 19 and 20. And this is where we're going to... We'll end on these verses, but these are where, what I want us to go home with. <clears throat> because these verses are, are most precious. It says, your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So he led his people through the sea, through those mighty waters of the Red Sea. But when they were standing on the edge of the, of the water, they did not know what God was going to do until God had spoken to Moses. It was unknown. They didn't know what God was going to do. That's what is meant by those words, your footprints were not seen. So there was no, uh, there was no footprints in front of them, even on the water, to guide them through. There was no 
uh, secret passageway that they could find and tunnel. They, li- they didn't know. And it says God led his people like a shepherd leads his flock. And he used Moses and Aaron who, who led the people to the other side. You see, what Asaph is doing here, he's going a step further from bringing the past in the pre- to the present so he can have hope. He recognizes the sovereign hand of God so that he can trust. He doesn't know what the future holds, but he knows God does. And acknowledging the sovereign hand of God leads to trust. So he remembers the Israelites at the Red Sea with this body of affliction in front of him. And he trusts that God will lead him through, even though the footprints can't be seen. And as Asaph saw this, he applies it to himself and he says, he doesn't say it literally, but you can imagine him saying, although I can't see the footprints, they most surely are there and God will lead me through. The call here is to trust in God even when we can't see the footprints ahead. Even when it seems like he's hiding and we can't see him, or so it seems he's hiding at least. What is the equivalent for you of the Red Sea? What is it that is vast and uncertain and you don't know how you're going to get through and God seems to be hiding from you? What is it that makes you feel like Asaph does in this psalm? Just like with Psalm 74, I said there are three types of people here. You've either been afflicted, are being afflicted, or will be afflicted. So perhaps you can look back to a time and, and, and think, yeah, those footprints, I couldn't see them. Maybe some of you here tonight are thinking, I don't know how God's going to get me through. I can't see those footprints. And if you don't feel like that and you never have, you will. But we must trust in him, that he has a way through for us even though we can't see it and even when we can't imagine. God is good in the unseen. And it's in mostly unseen ways that he works for our good to prepare us for and lead us to glory. It's interesting that the psalm begins with this crying out to God for help. He's crying out in affliction. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He doesn't know what's going on. And as we end the psalm, we don't really have an answer. There's no footprints. There's no footprints that tell us, here's the five-step plan to get through. Do these five things and everything will be fine. It ends with a call to just trust God even when the footprints can't be seen. And in the Exodus, the sheep, it says at the end of this psalm, were led by the hand of Moses and Aaron. They were God's chosen people to lead his people through. But now we are led by Jesus, the good shepherd. And listen to these words that Jesus said about himself in John chapter 10 and verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. And my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. We are now led by the hand of Jesus. He knows his sheep. He loves them. 
He will lead them to safe pastures of glory, even when we can't see his footprints. And so the call this evening is not, here's some advice, here's what you should do. The call is to trust God. He's our good shepherd. He will lead us through. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a great God. Indeed, Lord, with Asaph we say your ways, God, are holy. There is no God who is great like our God. We say that you are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. And we thank you, God, that you have redeemed us and we are your children. But Lord, we need to trust you. And Lord, we don't know all of what the future holds, but we trust in your sovereign care that you do. Help us, Lord, to trust in you. Whatever our circumstances are this evening, would we trust in you alone? Amen. Well, our final uh, song before we finish is... Uh, a version of Psalm 23, which is, The Lord is my shepherd, uh, which is a good way to end this psalm. And the chorus is the perfect way to end the psalm. It says, I will trust in you alone. So let's stand and sing to our God. <laughs> <laughs>